Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. I want to say a special thanks to a bunch of wonderful people who shared my podcast recently on social media. Thanks to Bookstagrammers Kelly Hook Reads Books, What Sherry Reads, Katie Needs a Bigger Bookshelf, Kristen's Reading Nook, One of a Kindle, Virginia's Reading Life, Barrett Talks Books, It's Book Talk, and N.Y. Judster for sharing about my podcast in their posts or in their stories in the last week. I am truly grateful. Word of mouth is really helping me grow the show. Today, I am interviewing Laura Hankin about a special place for women. Laura has written for publications like McSweeney's and Huff Post, while her musical comedy has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and more. She splits her time between New York City, where she has performed off-Broadway, and Washington, D.C., where she once fell off a treadmill twice in one day. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing great also, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about your new book. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about A Special Place for Women. Sure. So A Special Place for Women is about a journalist named Jillian, who is not in a good place in her life. Her mother recently died of cancer. Her journalism job just shut down. Her new media company that she was working for folded. And she feels like her career is really passing her by. So she's like, okay, one more chance to shoot my shot and make my name. I'm going to infiltrate this secret club for powerful women that I hear rumors about. You know, they're like the tastemakers of New York and they have the power to handpick the city's first female mayor and then maybe bring her down again when she's coming for their money. So Jillian decides she's going to get herself into the club only to find out that one, she kind of likes being in the club and two, that the women might be even more powerful than she ever thought they would be. I was fascinated as I was reading it, how you came up with the storyline. I mean, the journalism one, I can see because I think that's happening right and left. But how about the the exclusive club and what was going to happen in the club and all of that? Mm -hmm. So to do this without (laughs) talking about spoilers, a friend of mine years ago invited me to have a coffee with her at this like exclusive, not secret, but exclusive women-only co-working networking place in New York. And I remember going in and I'd heard a lot about this club and was like, oh, wow, it's this utopia for women. And I'm going to go and I'm going to just feel so bathed in love. (laughs) And then I ultimately just felt very self-conscious there because I think I felt like I wasn't impressive enough for the women. And so it just really 
fascinated me. And I, I was watching the rise and then, you know, sometimes the subsequent fall of a lot of these women only spaces uh, and was just really interested in the ways in which while trying to sort of solve gender inequality, they were maybe turning a blind eye to other kinds of inequality. And so I thought, why not put a journalist in there who, you know, wants to bring these women down, but let's amp it all up and make it more secretive and therefore like way more intense and a little cultier too. (laughs) And I thought I could have a lot of fun playing around in that world. Well, definitely you did have a lot of fun playing around in that world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Did that change as you went? I mean, did the story, again, I know this is a harder conversation with the spoilers and no spoilers, but did you have it all set out from the very beginning or as you wrote, did some of that change? So I will say, you know, there's this big twist about 60% of the way through. And when I initially was starting to write this book, I thought that maybe that twist would just be the premise of the book and we would know pretty early on, like exactly what was going on in this club. And then as I jumped into the writing, I think based on who my main character was and just based on how much fun I was having building out this world before the twist too, and all of the tension there of like, can Jillian get herself into the club? Can she get herself behind, you know, the various doors of secrecy? The more that I was doing that, the more I was like, oh, maybe I I want this twist to be a true twist about half of the way through, you know, (laughs) as opposed to the premise. I think it's more fun that way. Absolutely. Because you're building up to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's an odd twist. It's a weird twist. (laughs) And so I think it helps to really know and be on board with the characters before it happens. That's very true. And the other thing, I always skim through reviews before I talk to authors. The other thing I saw over and over again on Goodreads was how many people liked the fake dating aspect of it. That's not a spoiler, is it? No, no, I think. (laughs) I mean, it's in all the reviews, so (laughs) I hope it's not. It's funny. I've been trying to not really look at my Goodreads. I got it. (laughs) Um, So it's so great when somebody just tells me like the nice things that people say. Yeah, I loved writing the fake dating aspect. So (laughs) I remember when I went to visit this exclusive women-only space back in the day, I was in the elevator on the way back down. And, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was running around from day job to day job. It wasn't very happy. And this woman next to me was talking about how, like, the big struggle in her life was that it was really hard dating a celebrity chef because he was never free for brunch. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a struggle. It's so hard. Um, What will you do if you can't brunch with your lover? Exactly. Um, (laughs) So I think from that moment, I knew that if I ever was going to write a story set in this place, there needed to be a celebrity chef involved in some way. Who couldn't go to brunch? Couldn't go to brunch. Yeah. So, in the novel, Jillian has her childhood friend Raph, who has like grown up to become surprisingly this impressive celebrity chef, and she is able to basically be like, "Hey, Raph, can we fake date? Because I think I need to be more impressive so that these women will let me into the club." And still surprisingly, um, or maybe not surprisingly, like one of the easiest ways for a woman to seem more impressive is if like an impressive man wants to be with her. So yeah, Jillian and Raph do some fake dating. And I've always loved that trope. 
in rom-coms. And <laughs> even though this book is not a rom-com, I just wanted to have a like a nice little rom-com element to it to really give it some some more heart too. Well, it's definitely resonating with readers. Good, good. Oh, sweet Raph. Exactly. He is sweet. <laughs> One of the questions I usually ask is, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? And, you know, always get a variety of answers. And it's interesting because sometimes writers will say that, you know, readers take away different things than they're expecting them to, or different things will resonate. And so that made me think about when the fake dating kept coming up in reviews in a, you know, very positive way. I was like, oh, I wonder if that was one of the things that really stood out to you, or if you were going to be surprised that that was really resonating with people. Yeah. I mean, it stand, it stood out to me as I was writing it. I think I felt very like emotionally invested in their journey together. <laughs> but yeah, it does actually surprise me to hear you say that that's one of the top things that people are talking about. Because I would say, you know, the time spent on it on the page is probably a lot less than other aspects of the book. But maybe the heart is big enough that it, it has an outsized importance. <laughs> Well, by far, the number one thing people were talking about is the twist, but not talking about the twist itself, but that there is a twist and it takes a story in a different direction, which I think makes sense. But this was just something that came up again and again. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. But what else would you hope readers would take away from your book? Yeah, I wanted to interrogate the problems that could come up in a space like this uh, and the problems that happen when, you know, maybe our feminism or our activism becomes more performative than actually deeply felt. But I didn't want to condemn any of the characters because I think ultimately I do have this hope that people can be better and that we can grow and learn and change and like open ourselves up more. So I hope that readers are sort of left thinking like, wow, this actually was a much more hopeful book than I thought it might be. The performative aspect of social media and various things these days is such an interesting aspect of our life because I see that, I feel like that happens over and over again when some new cause or issue or something is happening that, you know, so many people are talking about it or posting about it, but I don't necessarily think they are acting on it, if that makes sense. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think there's this sense of like, oh, well, I got to say something about this so that my followers know that I'm an engaged and active person. But are you actually putting any energy in trying to solve the problem? Or are you just putting your energy into like putting a little post about it on social media? Exactly. It's sort of like do as I do, not do as I say kind of thing. And so I just always find it kind of interesting to, to watch how that plays out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this book. And, you know, I think in my mind, this club in the book was started with the absolute best of intentions. But then I think for a lot of us, there comes a point where like, you can go down the road where things are easier, and you're choosing to benefit yourself, or you can go down the harder road where like, maybe you have to give up a little bit more, so that more people can benefit. And I wanted to really explore the tension there. Well, I like that. And it definitely makes people think. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the essay that you wrote in Zibby Owen's anthology. The I think Moms Don't Have Time to Read or Moms Don't Have Time to is the name of the anthology. I would yeah. love to talk a little bit about that. Oh my gosh, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote about this day job that I used to have for many years where I was a children's musician. 
And one of the things that I would do is I would go bring my guitar to various birthday parties around New York for children. And I would just like sing the wheels on the bus and bring, you know, a parachute and some bubbles and play with the kids for 45 minutes. And I would spend a lot of time then just like watching the parents. In the essay, I talk about how like afterwards I would stay sometimes because the parents would offer me free food. And I was always like, I'm not going to turn down free food from wealthy people. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, But then I would feel very awkward, kind of like standing in the corner, housing birthday cake and not knowing who to talk to. And yeah, I would just kind of watch people and wonder about their lives and wonder if I would ever have a life like that. I think at that moment in time, I wasn't sure if I wanted to have a family or if it would be compatible with my career and my creative career, which was not coming to fruition as quickly as I hoped it would. And so it was a really fascinating experience. And it, my job doing that really played into my previous book, Happy and You Know It, which is about a children's playgroup musician uh, who gets drawn into the lives of the moms who she sings for. <laughs> Your bio at the end of the essay says performer, and I wanted to know more about that. Yeah. So I was a huge theater nerd and grew up, you know, I think torn between my two loves of reading and performing and moved to New York after college to try to be an actor and was going on lots and lots of musical theater auditions and then started writing because I was like, oh, I need another creative outlet that is within my control. And so for many years, I was doing a bit of both. and. It was cool. I got to do like some off Broadway, some regional shows. I formed a musical comedy duo with my friend. I love, love, love performing, but I also really love writing too. Uh, I think it's all about telling stories and all about characters. Well, that leads me to my next question, which was the video you made for your book last year for Happy and You Know It coming out during a pandemic. And when I watched it, I thought she's got to be a performer because it was so creative and you were so comfortable. So I was curious and that that now answers it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, my book tour got canceled and moved online. And I think I channeled a bunch of my anxiety into writing and performing this song called Indoor Book Tour (laughs) about how I was sort of like slowly losing it in my apartment, trying to make it feel like I was still going on a book tour. And I I just made another music video this year for A Special Place for Women as well. (laughs) Oh, I haven't seen that one yet. Okay, I'm going to have to look it up. It's even weirder. I think just like this look (laughs) is weirder. (laughs) I loved the part where you were sitting at the table and you had like a little piece of paper folded in the books and something about signing or something. I can't remember because I watched it a while ago, but it was really, (laughs) I, I definitely chuckled a number of times when I was watching it. Thank you. Yeah, I hope my neighbors can forgive me for like (laughs) blasting the same song over and over and over again so I can film these music videos. They're probably like, what is going on over there? I know. (laughs) Well, how long does it take you to write a book? Like how long did it take you to get A Special Place for Women initially drafted? Uh, I would say generally, depending on the book, it takes me between seven to 12 months to write a first draft. So yeah, Special Place for Women was interesting because it was the first one that i had ever written on a deadline. With Happy New Know It, I got a two book deal and you know, I was so lucky and I felt so grateful and 
we finished our edits on Happy and You Know It. And they were like, great. First draft of Special Place for Women is due uh, in a year. You're like, what? I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. And actually, I said first draft of a Special Place for Women is due in a year. They were like, first draft of whatever you're writing next is due in a year. And so I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess I should figure out an idea, huh? <laughs> So when you did the two book deal, it was based on Happy and You Know It, and then just a second untitled, not, you know, not subject known yet book. Is that right? Yeah, I think I pitched some other totally random book, and my editor was like, "Oh, that sounds like it could be interesting." But then ultimately, when I started thinking about it more and trying to flesh it out, that was not going to work. <laughs> so yeah, went through a few different ideas and had a probably about a month where I was like. I will never write again. I'm going to have to give back this advance. Like (laughs) I'm going to have to move to the woods and hide my face forever. (laughs) I'm fleeing to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be a farmer. (laughs) Do you have a set process for writing? Do you write a certain amount of words or a certain time every day? Or do you just write when you feel like it? I have an ideal process and it doesn't always work. But generally, I try to write in the mornings. You know, I'll wake up and go on a long walk with my coffee and I'll leave my phone at home. So I just have a chance to get bored and think about the book or what I'm working on. And then, yeah, I usually try to write a thousand words. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's less. You know, then there are the days where it just isn't coming or something else is happening and I'm distracted. And then I'll see the the moments where I tend to get the most work done and where writing feels the most magical, that's when I can just like get away for a couple of days, whether it's like staying at a friend's place or getting a cheap Airbnb and just like being alone, going on long walks, being like my purpose these days, I'm turning off my phone and my purpose is to just write as much as possible and like get as deep into the book as I possibly can. And so those are the moments where I'm like, oh, wow, over the course of two and a half days, I I wrote 8,000 words. <laughs> well, it is nice because you are able, like you said, to be alone and to focus in on what you're doing. Do you write your entire first draft and then go back and edit or do you edit as you go? Oh, that's a great question. I try to write my entire first draft and then go back and edit because I think if you get too stuck on editing while you're doing it, it, the whole process is going to just be so much slower and maybe you need to just really get into the flow of writing it. But that said, I also like work with a writing group sometimes and I'll give them (laughs) little bits of it as I'm going along. And if they have big notes and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a really good edit. And I'm excited to implement that then sometimes I'll go back and edit that. I guess too, as you're writing, if something goes in a different direction than you were initially anticipating, you also might be like, oh, well, I'm thinking about it. I'm going to go back and fix that, you know, this day that Jillian had or this event or something that's altered by what you're writing as you keep writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like you need to, yeah, go fix the part of it before, before you can like fully fall into it as you're going ahead. Well, on that note, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Yeah, sure. So I am working on my next book with my editor, and it is about (laughs) a group of 
teenagers who were like the stars of this Mickey Mouse Club-esque slash, you know, high school musical-esque show back in the early 2000s. And they were really, really, really popular. And then it all came crashing down on live TV in a kind of Janet Jackson at the Super Bowl (laughs) moment. Um, and so now it's 12 years later and they've all gone in very different directions in their lives and their careers. You know, the male cast member is thriving. The female cast members are maybe not doing so well and they all have to come back together again for a reunion special. And there's lots of unfinished business and betrayals and secrets and old flames. And it's, it's fun. It's one of those ones where I'm like, I love this idea so much and it's so good in my head. But like at the moment, I'm right. I'm at that first draft place where it's, you know, not nearly as good as you want it to be. And I'm like, okay, how do I make it what it is in my head? Which probably takes a while, you know, to get it translated to the page the way you want it to. Yeah, it really does. (laughs) Well, that sounds fabulous and relevant. It just seems like in the last few years, there have been a number of reunion shows Full House becomes Fuller House or the Gilmore Girls, you know, so that's fun because I think people will really enjoy that. It sounds like a a great read. Thank you. Yeah, I was really fascinated by like our love of nostalgia and how it felt like we were so obsessed with it. We wanted to like reboot everything, but then was it ever quite as good as we wanted it to be? I don't know. And then also at the same time, I feel like we're reevaluating how we treated some of our stars back in the early 2000s. So it's been fun. Well, that's true. And not only how we treated them, but sort of the jokes that were made and the way people behave to each other, not just from sexual assault or harassment perspective, but just generally how people were treated. I think it's interesting when you go back and read older, some older books or watch some older shows and you're like, oh, that joke doesn't really resonate as well today as it did then. I mean, it shouldn't have then, but it was just allowed then or was the norm. And today, as people begin to talk more about some of these things, you realize, okay, that really shouldn't have been funny. Yeah, 100%. Well, talking about books, what have you read lately that you really liked? So I am finishing up the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. It has just been so good. It's, I think, for fans of Daisy Jones and the Six, because it's a similar format. It's an oral history of a fictional rock duo back in the 60s, white man and a black woman. And it's just super immersive. And it's talking about really fascinating issues and the characters all feel so, so real. So I would really recommend that one. I've heard great things about that one. And I absolutely love Daisy Jones and the Six. That still remains one of my favorite books. Yeah. Ugh, the audiobook of that, incredible. That's what everyone says. I feel like I need to get the audiobook and and listen to it while I'm walking because it's been a while since I read it and I did really like it and then that would be a different way to experience the book. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a performance because they've got just a whole cast of incredible voice actors. But then I also recently read People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry, which is just a joy. So if anybody's looking for, you know, like a delightful when Harry met Sally-esque story that'll make you believe in love. That's a great one. I loved Beach Read and I have people we meet on vacation, but I haven't gotten to it yet, but I'm very excited to. I've heard such good things. Yeah, you'll enjoy it, I think. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, same. This was wonderful.
Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Laura's book can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.